Welcome back, everybody. This is the Edup Experience Podcast, where we make education your business, interviewing the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. My name is Dr. Joe Salustio. I would say always with me, but not always with me. My co-host, Elizabeth Leibo, who has disappeared. I saw her running down the hallway somewhere. She never came back. I'm just going to keep hitting this button for her. I'm going to keep hitting this, this button. This button. I love that. I love the, the, the beat, that little drum. You should Every, have that for me all the time. Okay, so here's how this episode will work. And I talked to our last guest, guest about this. Yes. When I say something, you will hear this. Anything. <laughs> okay. When you say something, Liz, anything, especially yeah, since you disappeared, <laughs> even if it's insightful, I'm hitting that button. And then when I say something, it will be this. Yeah. Oh, the laughter. Well, yeah. And then no matter what you say, you get this. Okay. <laughs> that's how this episode's going to work. It sounds like my household with my kids. Uh, that's exactly how it goes. Well, I'm used to this. I, I, you know, I've been on a roll. I've had like seven cups of coffee. I've had a green tea now. I'm going to literally that. jump out of my chair. I see. So you better watch out because I'm bringing the fire. Bring I the can imagine. I'm ready. Speaking of bringing the heat. There you go. You nice like segue. That? Good job. Um, we've got a really interesting gentleman here by the name of Michael Moore, and he is the chief academic and operating officer of eversity at the university of arkansas system huh. and he's the vice president for academic affairs at the university of arkansas system so he's just vice president and chief academic everything yeah. basically of the university of arkansas system that's right michael welcome to the show it's great to be here well we're happy to have you here um you know what the here's the here's the big question i'm just gonna roll out this question right from the beginning uh coronavirus forces every institution across the country to go online big institutions like the University of Arkansas, who may have played around with online before, really invested and put a foundation in online learning. Now it becomes part of the expectation maybe of students. Um, what's that investment been like for you guys? How's it going for you right now? And what do you expect out of your online? I guess that was three. Was that three questions? That's three. How about what's what's the online uh, foundation look like right now and how's it going? We'll start. Well, let me that. see if I can tackle all those. Okay. Uh, we've got about 15 different institutions, everything from a flagship institution to an HBCU down to a bunch of community colleges. Wow. Um, so when pandemic hit, we had to engage with those institutions and a lot of what a lot of people are calling pen panic learning or crisis online yeah. learning, right? We got to get online in weeks, days. We got to pivot an entire curriculum because our campuses were closing. Fortunately, we were uh, blessed that we'd already engaged with a system-wide contract for our learning management system. So all schools had the same uh, tools available to them. Good timing. But they didn't all have things in place like instructional designers and things like that. So uh, do you need instructional designers? You do need instructional designers. Are you sure? They're critical. Uh, you an instructional designer? I am an instructional designer, I mean, which I is why say... I'm very much aware of all how right. essential instructional designers right. have been, especially in the past year. Right. And that's, to me, the biggest difference between the crisis learning, pandemic learning versus what is considered fully online learning. So yes. the big school, the rest of our schools, the, they did great jobs. They kept students engaged, continue to make progress. There's degrees, uh, obviously struggling with things that required face-to-face -face activities like a lot of places, you know, things that are uh, essentially hands-on. You can't teach welding online. You can't yeah. conduct laboratories online. Those are really, really difficult to do. Um, but we made it. We got through. Campuses are back open. We expect to be fully there in the fall, uh, and we expect to be kind of be back to normal. I do think it's going to change the academy. Uh, students became more comfortable with online learning. I think faculty who maybe resisted online learning in the past, um, more open to the concept, yep. frees up their schedule, their time. Uh, but there is an expectation, I think, for 18 to 22-year-olds that are at traditional institutions to um, 
have those maturation experiences in clubs and organizations, to have that campus experience, meet their work closely side by side with faculty. The online university that you mentioned that we have has only been in business about six years. It's called Eversity, and it is an entirely different animal. Yeah. It is designed from the ground up to serve working adults. Our classes are built from scratch with the, a subject matter expert and an instructional designer in every one of the courses. We actually consider them co-developers. They co-own the courses. Uh, our courses, I think it reflects that. They've won several national awards for the quality instruction. And the courses are also structured entirely differently. We offer six-week classes. Only let adults take one at a time. Yep. We have a guaranteed tuition rate. There's no fees, no application fees, no graduation fees. We're 100% OER. So it's designed, uh -oh. and there's another good topic we can get into a little bit. It's 100% catered to that person who started college, got some credits, life happened, as I like to say, and they're coming back to school. We do take some first-time people right out of the gate, but that's less than 5% of our population. Our average age, we can get into that demographics a little bit. But we're basically 30, mid-30s and up. I'm going to, should I just step back and let you, uh, uh, are you... Are you pumping your arms right now? I'm getting I am. ready. All right, go. Because I am so fascinated by your background. You're a first-generation college student yourself. You have a real strong commitment to access and the ability to drive that for students. So speak to us about some of the things that you do differently. You, you hit on this idea of the six-week classes, the students taking the classes one at a time, the open educational resources. How do all those things work together to improve access, retention, and drive the non-traditional students toward graduation? Because there's still a lot of traditional schools um, that are utilizing online learning, or even some of the non-traditional, they say the non-traditional schools, but they still don't really understand how to harness the power of some of those elements like OER, for example, which can be a friction point for a student that is balancing homework, family, and then a $70 textbook or $200 textbook may just not be a part of the, the planning in terms of their bills for the month. So can you give us some insight into that? Because that's, I think, a real key component that a lot of schools are missing out on. Yeah, and let me let me actually start where we started at the very beginning. I know that sounds very cliche, but... We love give, origin stories. Yeah. I love an origin story. Yeah, I was given a great opportunity. I worked at a traditional university actually here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area for about 20 years, and we had uh, worked with an uh, online program manager, rapidly grew our online programs, uh, but it was always a bolt-on experience. And what I mean by that is when you're trying to serve a population that can't make it to campus and you tell that student that's struggling with that online math class that, yeah, we've got a math clinic and they're open from 8 to 5 and you've got to get to campus, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? That doesn't work. That's not a good solution. I mean, it's just one example. I mean, the same thing. Go, you got to go visit the financial aid office. you got to stop by and talk to your advisor. It just doesn't work for that population. And it became really clear that uh, working with legacy policies sometimes inhibits really cool innovation. Yep. So I was given this opportunity. I, how dare you say yeah, that? I, know. <laughs> I was given this opportunity to go up to uh, the University of Arkansas system where um, they were willing to experiment with, uh, and we debated this, are we going to put it into an existing institution and try to run it as kind of a separate division and give it some freedom with, and that has advantages. You get a student information system. You get an IT department. You're already accredited. Shared you got resources. Title IV. You got all the mm -hmm. stuff that's there, right? The built-in bricks and mortar. But at the end of the day, we decided that the freedom to innovate from the ground up and build something like we wanted to without being inhibited by legacy policies, that was more important to us than inheriting um, some infrastructure and some resources. 
And we thought we could figure out, because there's a roadmap on how to get accredited. There's a roadmap on how mm-hmm. to get Title IV. Um, some of the other things, the internal politics, if you're trying to really be disruptive inside an institution, you can lose a lot of those battles, even if you've got great ideas. That's right. So to get mm-hmm. to your question, just some examples of how we try to do things very differently is we literally started with a blank sheet of paper. We were in a literally a log cabin. My initial team had five people on it. We didn't have a refrigerator. Each day we'd drag a cooler across the street to the ice machine, fill it full of ice, and that's where people put their lunch. That's how we started. you got to sweat them out we to were, get the good ideas. <laughs> the good ideas. <laughs> right. it's, it's sweat like Waterboarding and sweat. <laughs> anyway, they get to sweat them out. But here's some, here's some of the things we do. Just give you a simple example about how we try to think differently from a brick-and-mortar institution. Um, every school I've been at has a stack of applications in the admission office that an adult or others, but mostly adults, have filled out. And they ask the question, you have to then send your transcripts into the institution. Well, they got busy. They went off to soccer practice with their kids or their second job or they went to go provide care for a sick loved one and they told themselves they would send that transcript in the next day and then they have to remember how what is a registrar because 20 years <laughs> exactly. later that word doesn't I love this and where yeah. how do i find that person and what ends up happening is you get a stack of applications that are never complete mm-hmm. and the register admissions office doesn't reach back to the student in most cases and say hey we're still missing three transcripts can you get those to us Meanwhile, the applicant is going wondering, why the heck have I not heard from the school that I oh sent $25 mm-hmm. to? This is the best professional to. development you could ever oh, get right here. Exactly. So here's what we do. They fill out about a 12-question application. We're an open admission institution. They check a box that authorizes us to go get the applications for them. We pay the fee. We eat it. We treat it as a lost leader. And we get the, applica- the, the transcripts in in just a few days, and we can then render an admission decision. Our average is about 10-day turnaround time from the time we get an wow. application to the time we're able to admit our students. We start students, we start classes every seven weeks. So the goal is fill out an application. We don't charge them to f- process that application. We go chase their transcripts. We get them in. We try to get them in class at the next start. Um, and that sort of mindset of just thinking differently about how can we reinvent the admission process? How can we readmit, reinvent the classroom process? Do I really want to send somebody over to the bookstore to buy a $200 math book when there's all these resources are available online now? Why not work with the faculty member to curate material that's freely available in most instances? And if not, let's build it ourselves and save that cost. So we have literally safe students tens of thousands of dollars a time we've been in business they don't pay for a single book no book we're 100 oer now there is a maintenance issue with that you got to decide you're going to invest in that but it to me it's what's in the best interest of the student getting across the finish line and one last point i want to make about this and it might lead to you some additional keep, questions you just keep going michael you just keep speak on it this population of students in my mind is one of the most misunderstood types of students that, that are in higher education we way too often label these people as dropouts. They are not dropouts. The term I like to use is a stopout. The average student coming to our school, and this is true with the other fully online institutions, is transferring into us 70 hours of college credit. You're a junior. You do not get to be a junior by failing in college. Mm-hmm. right? A dropout can't pass college algebra or can't get back for freshman English. That's somebody with 12 or 15 hours, mm-hmm. not 70 hours. You get to 70 hours, you have figured college out. You can do college. What you've had a problem navigating was life. Somebody got sick, you got relocated, you ran out of money, 
there was an obstacle you couldn't overcome. And then once you're out, it's harder to come back. And the further you are out, the harder they're coming back. Our students are smart. Our average pass rate is in excess of 90% of their classes. Our GPA is about a 3.4 institutional-wide. These are smart people who need an opportunity to get their college degree in a way that fits their lifestyle. I love that. I want you to, to imagine that. that you're smashing that mic on the ground. Don't yeah. actually drop it, but mic you drop. could drop it and you could yeah. walk away from they this right now. They need an done. opportunity. It's not an achievement gap. Yeah. We talk about this in K-12. through It's not an achievement gap. It's an opportunity gap because life happens. Not that they're not One smart. fender bender One away. One fender bender away. Crazy. And a lot of times I see that in the classroom where the first thing the students ask me is, do I have to buy the book? Because there is that friction point where a student is like, I don't have $150 for a book. And it's not that that person isn't smart. They have to pay daycare. They have their light bill. Those things they have to actually swipe their credit card for. And financial aid, they it's not included in their package. Or they don't have that ex- the excess funds to go buy that book outright and a lot of the times i agree with you there's that labeling of that these students can't be successful but like you said a lot of times those students have a ton of credits they just have not had a nurturing environment where they can be successful so i'm so glad you said that because that makes a huge difference in terms of our perspective as higher ed leaders we have to think in those terms i get oh go go ahead no to that point you were making about oer i mean the research and you start to see the publishers are trying to really co-opt the research that's happened around open educational resources. The research showed very early on that students that have access to their learning materials on day one do better in their class. I mean, this shouldn't have taken lots of scientific studies to for us to determine that. But to the point you just made, students were making decisions. I can't afford the book. I'm going to either wait till my financial aid comes in in a few weeks or... I'm going to try to pass that first test and see if I can make it without it. Mm-hmm. And if I can't, then I'm going to go get my book. Well, the problem is you're behind the eight ball then right. and you, you can't get there. So you're starting to see publishers move in this direction where they're coming up with innovative schemes for institutions like let's bake it into your tuition, mm-hmm. right, and provide it online. At the end of the day, it's bringing costs down a little bit, but the student is still having to pay for those books. Right. Uh, the OER model is, it's to me, is definitely one of the most exciting trends in it's higher education. Student focused Why now. are so many institutions, because I have to, I, I'm sorry, before oh, you no, jump you back get in. It. You get it. Why are so many institutions resistant to OER? I've been teaching for over a decade, and I've worked for, like, two schools. <laughs> oh, you're clapping at the over a decade. You keep going. <laughs> I've only worked for two schools that actually utilized OER. Nine times out of 10, the student either has to go on campus to the bookstore. And like you said, the student is going to take a gamble. They're going to say, hey, if I can wait, I'll wait till I get some excess funds and I'll go purchase it once I get my financial aid. Or just like you said, they're taking the chance and they're like, mm, what does the instructor say? Does the instructor feel like I can wing it or let me see how I can do? And a lot of times, too, in terms of retention, I always wonder what campuses are thinking because that student is gambling. Now the student has failed that first test or can't get through that first assignment because they don't have the proper resources. And now it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. I don't belong here. I'm not smart enough to do this. I wasn't able to pass this class. I don't have money for the textbook. Maybe college is not for me. And it just becomes this domino effect. What do you think it is? Is it that the schools are just not up on or don't understand the quality of OER because base instructors will tell you faculty that have used them is they're just as robust as the textbook materials or sometimes they're just equally 
you know, just right on par or even exceed the textbook? Is it that they just rather continue business as usual and have that additional revenue coming in from the bookstore? bookstore What is that that makes so many schools just not invest the resources? Like you said, there is that initial cost of, okay, we have to invest in the OER so we can get that out, whether it's us creating the resources ourselves, creating them in conjunction with a faculty member, if we're going to create pull them from a lumen or some other big sources out there. So that initial, but once you've done that, I mean, soapbox e- it even if I got to get on my soapbox for the OER, because I see them, I'm like, wait a second. If somebody for a million dollars says, is this OER or is this McGraw-Hill? You cannot tell the difference. So for somebody to say, well, I don't believe in OER. It's like, what are you looking at? You've got to Ask know. Michael, he's got the answer. I'm yeah, <laughs> I, you know, it it, it, it kind of gets frustrating because you you can see the students' frustration when they get into the classroom the first day and they're just looking at you like, I got to buy a $200 textbook. Like, I don't got, lady, I don't have $200. And it, I, I've it's gotten. It's just a reason to leave. It's another le- reason to leave. And it almost is for a faculty member. And I'm going to speak from the faculty perspective. It puts you in a really awkward position if you work with first-gen students because you've sat in that seat. You know how it feels to struggle and, and not necessarily have money. And then when you have to be the bear of the bad news, or sometimes I tell the students, well, listen, you can pass without the textbook, but don't run to the administration and tell them that I said don't get the textbook because the textbook is required. So it, it it just becomes almost, I think, just the, the it almost sets the students up to not trust. I was in a, a, an English composition class and I asked the students, why do they think that a lot of students either don't invest in the college education or don't see the need for college education or don't feel um, they they're starting to see a lot of chatter out there that college educations aren't needed. And one student, he raised his hand. He was a veteran, Latino young man. And he said, we don't trust you guys. And that broke my heart because I almost feel as though not investing in those kinds of resources like the OER, it almost sets us up as a, are we textbook pushers or are we That's educators? a lot to unpack there, my <laughs> friend, Michael. You know, but, but since you have, you're one of the very few um, leaders that we've spoken with that actually has OER. I just, I just, I'm wondering, did you run into resistance? How were you able to really get everyone on board with the idea of doing it? And why do you think we don't see it so much else all over the country? So that is a complicated question with a complicated answer. She asked the hard ones. So <laughs> like most things in life, there's not a single answer. You asked, what is the reason? There isn't a reason. There, right. are, there are lots of reasons that schools don't adopt OER. Um, I'll answer the easy part first. You asked about why we did it uh, and how we did we encounter resistance. We didn't because we started from scratch and this mm-hmm. was part of our DNA. So we didn't give faculty the option to not do it. Um, our faculty, by the way, we've got kind of a unique model. We can get into this a little bit if you want. All of our faculty come from our other institutions. So we don't have adjunct faculty. They're all faculty that teach at our community colleges and our four-year schools, our flagship, our medical campus. They teach for us. But part of the agreement to teach with us was to do OER. And if they said they weren't willing to do that, we would have found somebody else to work with. So I had the luxury of doing that, which isn't the luxury on most campuses. Now to your harder question, why aren't other campuses doing OER? There is a there is a profit motive at the central administration. There's usually a feedback loop from the bookstore, which is run increasingly by a private corporation and a percent of sales come back to the administration. But you do see some campuses adopting OER, so I don't think that's always determinative. Uh, there are, is a tremendous reliance on faculty members, on the publishers. 
Uh, and I want to take you inside the life of a faculty member at something other than a top tier research institution. They're teaching three, four different courses in the fall and maybe another two or three, right? There might be one that carries over again in the spring. So they might have over the course of a year, seven or eight different courses that they're teaching, uh, putting them with the responsibility of coming up with OER for that number of courses is really, really difficult. Then there's the maintenance issue. And the publishers, by the way, make it crazy easy on you, right? They show up at your office door or you go to a conference <laughs> and it's not just a book. It's a set of online laboratories yeah, and PowerPoint, video support, video support test, yeah. test bank questions, yeah, a bunch of back in the day. I'll show how old I am here. Transparencies that you would put on an overhead projector. Now it's PowerPoints. Right. So right. all of that That's is true. almost kind of turnkey, right? Yeah, Here's, here is your course in a box. Yeah. yeah. One other thing, a huge part of the academy classes are taught by adjuncts that go from one campus to the next. And in a metropolitan area like we're at right now, they're faculty teach at multiple different institutions. Right. So the textbook industry just has a lock uh, on that. So the programs that I've seen that are really, really successful um, and, you know, they're talked about in the Chronicle and Inside Higher Ed and other places are ones where they go after the core level courses because mm -hmm. there's big bang for the buck. There are a lot of students in right. those classes. The institution provides the faculty member with a small stipend and you make as part of that the agreement that you're going to provide them with the resources. I think it's a mistake to let the faculty member do it all on their own yeah. because there's so much work involved. It's not just finding the materials, making the links work, making it visually appealing, accessible, yeah. capable of being navigated, ADA issues. You need to pair them with a librarian and an instructional designer. We're back to the instructional designer again. <laughs> and then the agreement is you can't use a textbook. You can't use a textbook. And I'm going to circle back to where I began this and talking about that financial incentive to the, the administration. There is another way to spin this, which I think can help administrators. Yes, you might not get that revenue out of the uh, the bookstore that you were getting for that intro to college history or intro to political science. But you are in a great position to go down to your board of trustees or to the legislature and say, you know what? I invested $5,000 for a stipend to this U.S. history class. We eliminated every textbook across multiple sections of U.S. history. And here's what the amount of money I am saving our students. It will be in the tens of thousands of dollars mm -hmm. for just one course. There's a great story to be told. And more administrators need to get courageous about it and take that leap. It's also the number of students that that you retain by oh, creating exactly. OER. I mean, that, that material right. on day one. Yeah. They're going to be more successful. It's they're the they're going to be more shows. successful. Absolutely. They're at less dropout rate. You, you, your revenue is is there, right? Because you're going to lose double the revenue. It's harder to recruit it. It's harder to keep a student than it is exactly. to recruit a new one. You, you've got to do a lot of work, a lot of investment, staff time. There's so many ancillary costs involved in retaining a student. I want to take Can I have one oh, other yeah, plug go, about go, go. OER? The other advantage to OER is when you design it yourself as a faculty member for that, for, for your purpose, your department's purpose, your, your classroom purpose, there is a better fit to the curriculum you're teaching. So my background back in the day when I was teaching was intro to American government. I, I'm political science. Typical textbook has anywhere from 15 to 20 chapters in it for a 16 week course, right? There were chapters in there I never used. Of course. But if you design it for OER, the material fits the class. Students get really frustrated when they buy a big old fat book exactly. for several hundred dollars and you only use a third of it. Yeah, mm. frustrating. They don't, they don't have that experience with OER. 
great point. I mean, yeah, that's uh, it's that's amazing. It. You know, one of the things that you talked about that I want to just circle back on because you were talking about speed, um, building a eversity from the ground up allows for you to model uh, after speed. Uh, the speed of technology, the speed at which consumers buy something, especially adults and adult students. I, Liz and I both, uh, but I've worked in for-profit, I worked in for-profit education for about 15 years in enrollment and marketing. And that was our value proposition in for-profit back in the day was, yeah, you could, you could take a student at whatever university and you might get back to them in two months or you might get back to them in even two weeks, but I'm going to get back to them in two days or two minutes or two hours and I'm going to turn them around and, and because we had faster courses, I can enroll that student, get them packaged in financially, get them through orientation and get them started in a seven-week period or six-week period. And that's how for-profits grew. It also brought on, you know, bad players brought on the decline of the for-profit, but there are lessons to be learned for colleges and universities and how that for-profit model evolved higher education for the adult student. I'm so glad to hear you talk about that because when you're offering a quality education for adult students, you have to be ready when they're ready. You can't wait, you can't do classes, you know, have two terms every year and eight term, uh, you know, eight terms over four years and hope that that student's gonna wait till spring to 10. No, they're ready when they're ready as an adult. It could be that their kid's going to go back to school or go to, go to summer school, and that's when they need to start. So I'm so glad to hear you talk about that. And even the short-form application is important because you have to treat an application. Do we really need that much data? No, I need what I would call a long-form lead form, and then I'll collect your information later after we enroll you. And, and I love to hear you talk uh, innovatively about that. No, you're exactly right about what the for-profits did and how we learned from that. I'll be the first to admit, we don't have a lot of brand new ideas at Eversity. We do a lot of borrowing of ideas and lessons learned. The for-profits set the standard in response time. Uh, and I think what we bring to that is trying to take the, the, the best attributes of that model exactly. and pair it, though, with the credibility of a state publicly financed education. and With faculty. an incredible brand credible brand and faculty members from some of the best institutions around. And so that's where I think our value proposition is not using the, the adjuncts and making sure we're using full-time faculty and so forth. You do have to meet these people where they are at and have to be understanding that they're going to take two classes and then you might not see them for six months. And that doesn't mean they've left you. They're just going to, and you got to stay in touch with them. So it's a whole different model of engagement. Uh, about staying involved with them and making sure that they know you are there for them when they are ready to return, not giving up on them. Uh, there is, uh, I was on a brick and mortar campus for a long, long part of my career. And the two happiest days of my life are seeing the new students arrive in the fall and commencement. And I still have that satisfaction yep. at commencement. And these stories are really touching because it's grandma and mom getting the degree and the kids, the kids cheering the kids oh, are cheering I love, I love that it's just it's fascinating yeah, I, yeah um, I love it public higher ed needs to wake up to the huge market that is out there and I'm sure you've talked about this in other podcasts but there is mm -hmm. a demographic cliff coming yep. there are not as many students out there the only sector of higher education that is growing right now is is online education and the population out there, the number is staggering. It's something like 33 million Americans started college and did not finish. Some college, no degree. Some college, no degrees. And these, again, are stopouts by and large, not yep. dropouts. They're very capable. What are your thoughts about workplace readiness, workforce readiness, practical hands-on learning, how we can be as uh, a sector? I think 
uh, both Joe and I went to big state schools and the state schools are not as known for the non-traditional being able to provide the practical hands-on learning. It's more like, well, Joe went to party. I actually went to try to learn, but it's actually known as where you go to find yourself. Well, it it tends to be the purview of the community college moron or trade schools and things of that nature. Right. Um, I think there are ways, and we've we've gotten better online, right? I mean, when I, I've been doing online since '98, probably somewhere in that period, and there were things we could not do at all that we do pretty easily now. Uh, there are labs you can do online labs now. Mm-hmm. We couldn't do those, you know, a decade ago. I'm optimistic that technology will get better, but I also think there's ways to be innovative about how you schedule these things, right? You can take two classes, for example, that have labs, and you can deliver the online portion of it. And then have people come in for a very quick burst of lab activity. Mm-hmm. There's also nothing to say you can't take the lab to the student. Mm-hmm. Uh, it works better in metropolitan areas. But, yeah. you know, if you've got students that are clustered in various places, you know, we have EMBA programs all over the country that fly sure. people into a major airport. Why not fly them into the airport to conduct their labs or their oh, own experience? Love so it, it just I takes know, innovative right? thinking. You just got to think that <laughs> yeah. these problems can be solved. All right. Well, this this uh, we, this gentleman is in high demand. Michael K. Moore. He is the chief academic and operating officer at University University of Arkansas System. My friend, thank you so thank much you for all so the. Much. I'm, I'm going to leave you with these two. Thank you. A, a double. Oh yeah. So many gems. A double. Oh. Uh, he gets a double. Oh, applause. for sure. Absolutely. All right, Michael. Take it easy. Thank you. Thank Michael. you, folks. All right.